This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Several senators came out of a closed-door briefing with CIA Director Gina Haspel more convinced than ever that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had advanced knowledge of the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I have zero question in my mind that the uh, Crown Prince, MBS, ordered the killing, monitored the killing. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis briefed senators last week saying there was no direct reporting linking MBS to Khashoggi's death. MBS is a wrecking ball. I think he's complicit in the murder of Mr. Khashoggi. With everything in the news about the killing of Saudi dissident, U.S. resident, and Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi, The Intelligence Matters team here at CBS News thought it might make sense for me to offer some commentary on the issue, on CIA analysis, on U.S. policy, and where we go from here. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is a special edition of Intelligence Matters. So when an incident like this happens, in this case, the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Turkey, analysts do a couple of things. One is they try to put it in context. And you don't need new intelligence reporting to put something in context. You use history to put something in context. Had I been the analyst, what I would have done is written something that said, the Saudis have a long history of reaching out and touching dissidents. Touching means intimidating them, sitting down with them in a restaurant and threatening them. In some cases, it has meant rendering them back to Saudi Arabia, grabbing them in some country and bringing them back in Saudi Arabia. There is one case in Egypt quite some time ago where a Saudi dissident died. Whether that was intentional or not, we don't know. So there's some interesting context that an analyst can provide right off the bat, even before they have any reporting on this particular incident. The second thing that analysts would do is they'd start looking at the flow of information that's coming to them. And that flow would be coming to them from a variety of different places. So there'd be one flow from the CIA, there'd be a flow from the National Security Agency and its collection, 
There might even be a flow from the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which analyzes satellite imagery. There would be a flow of public information, what the Saudis are saying publicly, what the Turkish government is saying publicly, what Khashoggi's family is saying publicly. And there would be a flow of information from other countries as well. In this case, we know the Turks provided some information to CIA Director Gina Haspel, let her listen to the tape that they had from inside the consulate. But there might be information from other governments as well. So that flow of information starts and the analysts start looking at it. Now, the other thing the analysts can do is they can also task intelligence collectors. So they could say, here's some questions that we need the answer to. They start getting this information, and then they start answering the questions that they need to answer. And the most significant question here, at the beginning at least, was what happened inside that consulate? What was the intent of the Saudis with regard to Jamal Khashoggi showing up at the consulate? Was their intent to render him? Was their intent to kill him from the beginning? And who knew about that back in Saudi Arabia? In particular, did the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, know about it? So that was like the fundamental question. Uh, There's not a smoking gun. There's a smoking saw. You have to be willfully blind not to come to the conclusion that this was orchestrated and organized by people under the command of MBS. In the vast majority of cases, the analysis that is done would be presented to the president and his or her national security team on paper. It might be provided orally, but it would be based on analysis on a piece of paper. So I believe that most likely the analysis that Mohammed bin Salman was involved in this, was aware of what was going to happen to Jamal Khashoggi in that consulate, that that analysis probably first showed up as a presidential daily brief item for the president. He might not have seen the written product. Maybe he was just briefed on it. But analysis that is that critical and that important is going to be on a piece of paper from the very beginning. President Trump said in a statement, it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. So analysts do two things when they answer a question. They make a judgment. Did MBS know about this or not is the judgment. And then they attach a confidence level to that judgment. And it's low, medium, or high. And sometimes you put the two together, low to medium or medium to high. All of that flows from the Iraq WMD experience when we made a judgment that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. And we made a judgment about confidence, but we really didn't think about it hard. And had we thought about it hard, we really would have been at low confidence. So it would have been a completely different story had we said to George Bush, Mr. President, we think he's got weapons of mass destruction, but what you really need to know is that we only have low confidence in that judgment. So ever since that time, there's been a huge emphasis on not only making the judgment, but also making a judgment about how confident are you in this. Somebody asked me recently, does low confidence mean you don't believe it? And I said, no, absolutely not. You still believe your judgment. You just don't have enough different sources of information. You don't have enough direct evidence. Some of those sources may not be as credible as you would like them to be to get to high confidence, but you still believe it even at low confidence. When the Washington Post first published the initial piece on CIA's analysis, it said high confidence. And I was at a dinner and somebody was looking at their phone and they said, the CIA says the following, and they say it with high confidence. And everybody kind of looked at me because I'm this former CIA analyst. And I said, the two most important words that were just said were high confidence. 
to to put a label of high confidence on something is is rare. It doesn't happen very often. It's a high bar to get the high confidence. CBS News can confirm that the CIA has intelligence that substantiates an assessment that Mohammed bin Salman ordered the killing. If we ask ourselves, where did all these leaks come from? The first thing I would say is that it's kind of a shame that we're talking about this because we shouldn't be. These leaks should not have happened. This is classified information. The act of leaking it is a felony. I'm certain that this has been reported to the Department of Justice. Every leak gets reported to the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice has to figure out whether they want to pursue the case or not. And it really depends on the significance of the information and how many people had access to it. So if a 1,000 people had access to it, the Department of Justice is going to say, boy, this is going to be too hard, right? But maybe if only 15 people had access to it, then that's something they'll pursue. My guess on the first leak to the Washington Post was that that came from a congressional source. Because what happened two days prior to that is the CIA briefed the two intelligence committees with their judgment about MBS. And I wasn't surprised to see the sourcing in that reporting saying U.S. officials. Most of the time when the source is somebody in the executive branch, you will see senior administration official. Sometimes when you see U.S. officials, it's kind of a signal that it's Congress. The second leak, the leak to the Wall Street Journal, when somebody actually showed the Wall Street Journal reporter a copy of the written analysis, I would bet that that leak came somewhere from the executive branch because that's where the hard copies of this analysis would be. I'm not going to destroy the world economy and I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. When you think about what the damage might be here from the leaks, I think it falls into two groups. The first group is the information about the data that led the analyst to the judgment. The fact that we're able to collect certain things is damaging because if you're reading that in the rest of the world, you're going to change your behavior. You know, Bin Laden never made another phone call after the New York Times reported that the U.S. intelligence community was intercepting his phone calls. He never made another phone call for the rest of his life. So people change their behavior based on what they read of intelligence leaks in the media. It's a mean, nasty world out there. The Middle East in particular, there are important American interests to keep the American people safe. Uh, the United States will continue to have a relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They're an important uh, partner of ours. Uh, we, will, we will do that with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, its people. That is, that is the commitment that the president made today. The second group of damage is, you know, CIA's relationship with Saudi Arabia is extraordinarily important. It's extraordinarily important to keep the United States safe. The Saudis provide us information on terrorist threats to the United States. There are Americans who are alive today because of intelligence that the Saudi government has provided to us. The CIA saying that MBS knew about this in advance complicates that relationship. It makes that relationship uncomfortable. So I think the damage falls into those two camps. We do not have a smoking gun that the crown prince was involved. The main pushback from some executive branch officials, to include the president, to include the secretary of state, to include the secretary of defense... And their pushback has been, essentially, there's no direct evidence. There's no smoking gun. To me, does not carry a lot of water. There are very few CIA judgments where they are 
is direct evidence. We did not have direct evidence that bin Laden was at Abbottabad. So if Barack Obama's standard had been, you have to have direct evidence, bin Laden would still be in that compound. We would never have taken action. And there are many, there are many individuals who are rightfully in jail in the United States, rightfully convicted, who there was no direct evidence for the crime they committed. So it happens every day in the intelligence world, in the law enforcement world, that people are held to account and judgments are made without direct evidence. One of the important aspects here to understand is the relationship between the intelligence community and the consumer of the information, the most important consumer being the president. Some people ask the question, does the president have to accept everything that the intelligence community is saying to him or her? And the answer is absolutely not. Presidents receive information from lots of different sources. Presidents receive information from the intelligence community. They receive it from State Department. They receive it from the Defense Department. They receive it from the media. They receive information from all sorts of people, and they come to their own judgments. So it, it's not unique that a president says, I don't buy that. It happens. When I was briefing President Bush every day for a year, occasionally he would say to me, Michael, I just don't buy this argument. We would go back and forth, and sometimes I would convince him, and sometimes I wouldn't. But there's a big difference between not accepting something because intellectually you don't buy it and not accepting something because it's inconvenient for the policy path that you want to go down. And I think what we saw in this case was pushback, not because you had some intellectual problem with the judgment, but because it was complicating the policy path you wanted to go down. It's all about America first. We're not going to give up hundreds of billions of dollars in orders and let Russia, China, and everybody else have them. One of the things that I think it's important for people to understand about CIA analysis and CIA judgments is that it's not a one-time event. It's not static. It's dynamic. And it's dynamic because there's a constant flow of information. So you get a certain amount of information and you make a judgment, but additional information keeps on coming in. And so you adjust that judgment over time. Sometimes you change it completely and say, look, I was wrong, and here's what we believe now. Sometimes the new information solidifies the judgment. Sometimes it changes it it slightly, and sometimes the confidence level changes as you get more information, right? The confidence level goes up as you get more information. So there might be a difference between the original written report that the Wall Street Journal reported on and what Gina Haspel briefed to Congress this week. More information might have come in. So that's something that people have to keep in mind, that this is not just a static one-time event. This is constantly changing. CIA Director Gina Haspel briefed Senate leaders today on the death of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. This comes after she was absent from last week's briefing. That one was conducted by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Defense Secretary Mattis. It was a genuine mistake uh, for the administration to have the briefing yesterday and for the CIA director not to be there. Director Haspel was invited to the Hill last week with the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. For some reason, she did not go. Unclear to me whether she was asked not to go by somebody. The CIA press office says the White House didn't tell her not to go. But did somebody else tell her not to go? Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense? Or did she decide not to go herself because she was concerned about leaks? Clearly, the first time CIA went up and briefed, there were a lot of leaks. So I don't know why she didn't go, but she needed to have gone. When the Congress of the United States asked to see the CIA director to have 
her or him, brief them on an analytic judgment, you go. You absolutely go. So what she did this week was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, I can't remember a single time during the Obama administration when I was deputy director where Congress asked to see the director or me to get briefed on a specific issue where we said no. And there were plenty of times in the Obama administration where there was a difference of view on a policy issue between the administration and the Hill, and the administration sent up a team to brief the Hill. I can't remember a single time when there wasn't an intelligence representative in that group. It was important for her to be there to brief CIA analysis because they are going to take a vote. They are going to make decisions about what to do about Saudi Arabia. Right? They can withhold arms sales. So they are the policymakers in, in, a, in a significant way in this case because the president has abdicated that responsibility to them. They need a full briefing, not only on the Mohammed bin Salman, Jamal Khashoggi judgment, but a lot of other judgments about what happens in Yemen if we withdraw our support. Do things get worse? Do things get better? That's not a judgment that the Secretary of State gets to make. It's a judgment that the CIA makes. If we impose sanctions on Saudi Arabia over this, what does Saudi Arabia do? Do they play with the oil market? Do they cozy up to the Russians or the Chinese? How do they respond to that? These are all really important questions that the CIA and the intelligence community provide answers to. The United States must have a strong response uh, to both the war in Yemen, as well as the killing of a United States permanent resident and journalist in Jamal Khashoggi. And only a strong response by the United States will send a clear and unequivocal message. So if I were CIA director, I wouldn't have a policy view, right? Because CIA doesn't do that. So let's say I'm national security advisor and the president asked me for my view. I would say, Mr. President, we need to do three things. Number one, we need to make sure that in whatever we do here, we preserve this relationship. This is an extraordinarily important relationship. Yes, it's important because Saudi Arabia buys a lot of stuff from the United States, but it's really important because of its importance in the Middle East, its importance in pushing back on Iran in the region, its importance in successfully reforming its society and its religion and its economy for the whole region that's important, as a model for the region that's important. So it's important from a counterterrorism perspective. Second point is we have to put some sort of sanctions on Saudi Arabia. We have to send the signal to Mohammed bin Salman, and we have to send the signal to every other leader in the world that you cannot get away with something like this. But with regard to who the U.S. has sanctioned so far, and by the way, the sanctions so far are essentially only that you can't travel here to the United States. So this is not particularly significant. But in terms of who was sanctioned, there are two people, two people's names who weren't there. Number one was MBS, the crown prince. I imagine that's a policy decision on the part of the executive branch, despite what the Central Intelligence Agency is, is telling them. And then there's the second guy, the former deputy of the country's external intelligence service, who supposedly was the most senior guy who signed off on this operation. Why his name is not there? I don't know. You know, some of the people that I've talked to outside of government say that the amount of evidence for his involvement just isn't there, but I don't know. So if the CIA really believes that Mohammed bin Salman was involved, maybe those sanctions need to be directed at him personally as well. Not forever, but for some period of time. 
you got to send a signal that you can't do this. And then third, and only behind the scenes, you send the secretary of state to have a one-on-one conversation with Mohammed bin Salman, where the secretary of state says something like, buddy, this can never happen again. Number one. Number two, you have to change the way you make decisions. One of the problems here is that there's too small a circle around you and they're too young. You need to widen that circle and you need to get some more experience there. You need to get some more people with gray hair. And number three, you need to show the world that you're changing the way you make decisions. So you need to create something like a council of elders who you go to to talk about policy, significant policy matters. So that third conversation needs to be important an important part of this. Well, we don't want to lose the relationship, but you have to send the right signal and you have to get him to change his behaviour. The prince portrays himself as a reformer. Over the last year, we've witnessed women finally granted the right to drive, more mingling between the sexes and even rock bands allowed to perform openly. The last point to make, I think, is what's the most significant damage that's been done here? One of those pieces is clearly the death of Jamal Khashoggi and the pain and suffering of his family. But the other, and I don't think there's been enough discussion of this, the other is that I think this incident has done significant damage to the reform effort of Mohammed bin Salman, which we want to succeed, right? We want economic reform in Saudi Arabia to succeed. We want societal reform and religious reform to succeed. I think that because of what happened here and because of his reported involvement in what's happened here, he has just made his job of reforming Saudi Arabia that much more difficult. And he does it every time he does something reckless. There's a lot of U.S. companies that I talk to who say, you know, the risk of doing business there keeps on going up and up and up. And that means to me, the business, that the rate of return I need to make an investment there, which is what the Saudis want American business to do, keeps on going up and up and up because that risk goes up and up and up. He is going to become, I think, less effective in pushing his reforms because he's damaged politically at home. Sadly, he has done damage to the thing that he says he cares most about. This issue has put the United States in an extremely difficult position. You know, there's been plenty of presidents who've had to choose strategic relationships over human rights, but never has the human rights violation been this brazen and never on the order of a leader, right? So it's put us in an extraordinarily difficult position. I don't think the president has handled it particularly well, um, but it is a, a very, very, very difficult issue to manage. That was a special edition of Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us for our next episode. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? 
Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.